uh, I am a huge music fan. Now, you may not know that, and that's okay, uh, but I like all kinds and types of different music. As a matter of fact, my daughter was in class the other day, and some song was playing. They were doing something at school. I think it was a country song, and she was like, my daddy would like that song. And, uh, and I said, well, why do you think I'd like that song? And she said, it sounds like something you would listen to in your truck. And I kind of giggled a little bit because, A, I don't listen to a lot of country music um, in my truck, but I do like country music. Um, I listen to a lot of rock, uh, a lot of oldies, uh, a lot of Christian music, uh, a little bit of rap here and there. I mean, pretty much I listen to anything uh, when I'm riding in my truck. If you get in my truck, your guess could be as good as mine on whether we're on a radio station uh, whatever the type of music might be, or whether we're on a Spotify playlist. I just like music. I'm not the talk radio guy who wants to listen to people talk about things when they're in their car. I know some of you do. Um, I'm not that guy. I'm also not the silent rider. Some of you just, in silence, drive down the road. I don't even know how that's possible. Um, but I'm not that guy. I I love all types of different music. As a matter of fact, I'm a Spotify guy. And so I use that to kind of stream all the music that I listen to. I've got uh, all kinds of playlists that I've created. I've got worship song playlists. Matter of fact, I like, and you you may not consider this worship songs. I'll let you have the debate on that. Uh, But I love worship songs that are led by Christian rock bands. So they're a little bit heavier than what we probably listen to on on a Sunday morning or that we sing together congregationally. I'll give you that. Uh, but they're all about Jesus, and they're all about lifting him up. They're all about praising him. And so for me, one of my favorite playlists is one I named Pedal Harvey Rock Stars. And I, I did it when I was at Pedal Harvey Baptist Church, and it was just all my favorite Christian rock bands uh, in a playlist. I love boy bands. No, you might not think that about me, but I am a boy band fan, all right? I have a playlist that's just simply called Boy Bands. So if you're a Spotify person and you want to connect with the best boy band playlist that's out there, I have it. Just look for me, search for boy bands, and you'll find it. I love Boys to Men. I love In Sync. I love Backstreet Boys. I love Motown. Listen, you put a lot of people in there. Uh, I am a I am a boy band uh, uh, kind of guy. I have workout. What? <laughs> Listen, I got all kinds of playlists, right? I got worship playlists. Um, I got workout music. I got oldies rock. I got Christian uh, rap. I got all kinds of different things. I love music. I love to listen to music. I-, I love listening to music when I'm working. As a matter of fact, I wrote this Bible study while I was listening to something, uh, while I was typing up the words uh, that, that, are, that are in this discussion tonight. But when I was a kid... Everyone that was anyone loved Michael Jackson. So for me, I'm in that same group of people. You can say whatever you whatever you want to about music. You can say whatever you want to about who Michael Jackson was personally. I understand. There's some weird stuff out there, okay? But I don't care what you say. I am 35. But Michael Jackson Greatest Hits was one of the first CDs I owned uh, as a kid. And so I, I listened to tons of Michael Jackson songs. And whatever you may think about him, I don't really care. You cannot deny that he had some great music. If you do deny it, then you're wrong. Because 
Y'all may be more familiar with a guy called Elvis, who is the king of rock and roll. But where I was at, we were more acquainted with Michael Jackson, who was the king of pop. And so uh, that was what I listened to a lot uh, when I was a kid. Everybody else did. But I, I'll never forget um, when, whenever I was in college and I had, I had a best friend. He was going into ministry the same time that I was going into ministry. We we're both trying to figure out. Uh, you know, what God wanted for our lives, you know, how we were going to serve him. We, we had these huge plans. You know, we're, we're 18, 19 years old. We think we're the best preachers in the world. We can do everything better than these guys who are old and don't know what they're talking about, right? Those 30 year olds had no idea. Them old fogies, what they were doing. And so like, you know, that, that was us kind of figuring things out. He, he was my, he was my best friend. He was my best friend in ministry, but he would always play a particular Michael Jackson song all the time. Now, you've heard this song, and it, it, it's a play a little bit with what we're going to look at tonight. So you may say, Danny, why are you talking about Michael Jackson? That's why. Uh, he would love to listen to a song called Man in the Mirror. Anybody heard this song? Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson. If you haven't, um, I'm sorry. Nobody's raising it. For Michael Jackson? Thank you, sir. I appreciate that. All right. Uh, just in case, I want you to hear a little bit of the lyrics from Michael Jackson's song, Man in the Mirror. Now, yes, we're going to get to the Bible, all right? But before, here are the lyrics to Man in the Mirror by Michael Jackson. Now, try not to sing it. I'm going to do my best to try not to sing it. It's not a special music moment. But here, here's what he wrote. I'm going to make a change for once in my life. It's going to feel real good, going to make a difference, going to make it right. As I turn up the collar on my favorite winter coat, this wind is blowing my mind. I see the kids in the street with not enough to eat. Who am I to be blind, pretending not to see their needs? A summer's disregard, a broken bottle top, and one man's soul. They follow each other on the wind, you know, because they got nowhere to go. That's why I want you to know. And then he writes the chorus. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If they want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and then make a change. Now, I won't read the whole song, but I want you just to think a little bit about this particular chorus. I'm going to read it to you again. I'm starting with the man in the mirror. I'm asking him to change his ways. And no message could have been any clearer. If you want to make the world a better place, Take a look at yourself and then make a change. You say, Danny, why in the world are you talking about a Michael Jackson song? Well, I was reading this week. Of course, we read over and over and over again several different texts and passages, all dealing with the last hours of Jesus' life. And when we come to Luke chapter 23, especially when we hit verse 32, here's what we discover. As Jesus is about to be crucified, he is not alone on the cross. As a matter of fact, he is the man in the middle. There is a guy on his left and there is a guy on his right. And he is in the middle of these two, what we will learn in a moment, are called criminals. He's in the middle of these criminals about to die for the sins of the world. Now, okay, Danny, I see man in the mirror, man in the middle, gotcha. Well, I think for me, the reason why, as I'm reading this story, all I could think about is a song from Michael Jackson is because I think for most people, I think for me, before I knew Jesus, and even since I've known Jesus, 
I think for me, most days, when I think about how can I be better, how can I be the best version of myself, how can I make a difference, how can I change the world, I typically, the motivation, the thought process that I go to is this. I'm looking at the guy in the mirror, and it starts with him, right? I need to be better. I need to make a change. I need to work harder. I need to figure something out. And don't get me wrong. (laughs) We certainly need to be better and make some changes in our lives. But we don't need to look at the man in the mirror. I'm going to tell you why. You ready? Change won't happen because I look at the man in the mirror. It happens because I, fo- I it, it won't happen because I focus on making myself a better person. It won't happen by changing my ways to change the world. Change won't happen because I start with the man in the mirror. Change will only happen when I start with the man in the middle. And you say, Danny, what do you mean? Look at Luke 23, verse 32. Let's take this journey together. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. Now him, of course, is referring to Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. So obviously, here's the connection, right? Here's where we find Jesus, who we will refer to tonight as the man in the middle, specifically in this text, in the middle between two criminals. All of the three guys who are hanging on this cross are about to die for sins, but one of them has never known sin. As I was reading this account, all I could think about was the man in the middle. All I could think about is what happens when I look at him rather than looking at myself. And here's what I discovered. When I look at the man in the middle, I see punishment. It's the first thing right off the bat that I notice when I'm looking at Jesus hung on this cross in between two criminals in the middle of two people who deserve it. Jesus is being punished. Now, Luke lets us in real quick. He tells us they were led away to be put to death. Now, this is not an uncommon story for us. We have read the crucifixion of Jesus a million times probably, right? Every year, we go through some holiday, whether it's a Christmas uh, uh, build-up, whether it's an Easter build-up, whether it's some other time throughout the year, whether it's just every time somebody teaches because Jesus is that important, regardless We've all read this. We've all been down the story. We all know what happened to Jesus. And for this past week in our Bible reading, we have looked at it over and over and over and over. Here's what we know happens. The religious leaders of his day have schemed against him to have him killed. Jesus just finished praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples. This is the moment where he's so burdened that he is... He is sweating drops of blood, right? This is the moment where he says, this is going to be difficult, Father, but I want your will and not mine. So even if I can't do anything else, even if this is the road I've got to go on, I will take the cross, I will go to the hill, I will die, I will pay the penalty for sins. Jesus has just finished struggling with God, with his disciples. He's praying for God's strength because he knows how difficult the path ahead of him will be. In fact, one of his own 
disciples, Judas, would be the one who would betray him into the hands of his accusers. As a matter of fact, this is how it happens in Matthew chapter 26. Listen, listen to these words. While he was still speaking, talking about Jesus, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now we learn from John chapter 18 verse 10 that Peter is the disciple who took his sword and cut off the ear of the high priest's servant whose name was Malchus. Then Jesus said to him, talking to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, we discover that Jesus touches the man's ear. As a matter of fact, I believe he picks the, the cut-off ear off the ground, puts it back on Malchus's head, and heals the ear that Peter cut off. And then he says, Jesus' words, I love this moment. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send, send me more than 12 legions of angels? Now process this. Danny, why are you telling us this part of the betrayal? Because process this as we think about the punishment that Jesus will take on our behalf. In this moment, He's looking at His disciples who are furious and who want to take up charge and who want to protect their Messiah. And in this moment, Jesus looks at them and says, don't you guys realize, if I wanted this to be different, legions of angels would appear and the world would be gone. But he doesn't. And shortly after this, Jesus is betrayed. He is arrested. He is then placed on trial. And once the Romans realized that there was nothing they could do but give Jesus to the Jews to suffer, we watch the scene as Jesus is crucified. Listen, friends, Jesus should have never been punished, right? Like this is the moment. He's, he's hung between two criminals. They deserve it. He doesn't. He takes the punishment that I deserve, but he never did. When I look at the man in the middle, it completely changes my perspective on my life and yours and this world. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about the love of the one who laid it all down. So before he's crucified, we meet two other men that are considered the criminals, right? Who will die next to Jesus. Now the word used for criminals means wrongdoer or evildoer, or it just really means a bad person, right? Like that's pretty easy to understand. These guys were not good people. Now what's interesting about this is that some people think these criminals were possibly the accomplices of Barabbas. Now if you're reading through the, the last hours, the final moments of Jesus, you've encountered Barabbas, right? He's the wretched man. He's the insurrectionist. He's the rebel, right? He's the guy who, by the way, most people think this cross that Jesus is about to hang on, it was fitted to a guy named Barabbas. And a lot of people think it was fitted not only to Barabbas, but to the criminals who were his accomplices, who would die with him, deserving a death that was due them. 
but Jesus instead bears the cross that was actually made for Barabbas. We know Jesus certainly doesn't deserve a cross. The difference between the men on the side and the man in the middle is that the two of them deserve to be there and one of them did not. Here's the truth for us. They're really not that much different than we are, are they? I mean, do you see the scene as it's being built? We should be punished. The cross wasn't just made for Barabbas. It was made for criminals. It was made for wrongdoers, for for evildoers. It was made for bad people. This is all of us before Jesus comes in and makes us new. This cross was not for Him. He didn't deserve it. We deserved it. It was designed for you and me. The punishment was ours, but Jesus took our place. What had He done to deserve a cross? He turned water into wine. Was that a crime? He healed the sick. Was that really that big of a deal? He raised the dead. He fed thousands of people who had enough. He walked on water. He, he did miracle after miracle after miracle. What did Jesus do to deserve the cross? Think about it. The guys on his right, the guy on his left, they are criminals, wrongdoers, evildoers, bad people. The one guy on, in the middle is the savior of the world, God's son. Criminals deserve a cross. You and me deserve a cross, but Jesus is punished for us when we are the ones who deserve the punishment. As I'm reading this and I'm just letting it sink in, how different does it make me look at my life if I'm constantly processing it by looking at the one that they took to a hill called the skull, which we know in English as Calvary, who took the punishment that was mine. Can I tell you something, friends? Listen to me. I don't care how much you look at the man in the mirror. I don't care how much you want to be better. I don't care how much you want to change. I don't care how much you want to make a difference. Can I tell you something, friends? You will never do it by looking at the man in the mirror. That guy deserves punishment. It will only happen as we look at the man in the middle who bore our punishment so we could be made new. Look at verse 34, Luke 23. We're going to move a little faster now, I promise. You ready? And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. When I see the man in the middle, I certainly see punishment. I also see patience. Maybe a little hard to read. I apologize. I also see patience. I want you to see this. This is so interesting. The word for said in verse 34, when it says, and Jesus said, It's actually in a tense that we don't think about as much in English. It's the imperfect tense in the Greek, which really should be translated like this. And Jesus was saying. It was continuous. It wasn't a one-time thing. It's not just, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He is saying this as a prayer over and over and over throughout the entire Process. Matter of fact, back in verse 33, it tells us, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. So here they are in the process of crucifying Jesus. You know how this works. We've, we've, we've seen this and read this and heard this a million times. They would have laid his body down on the beams of the cross. They would have driven nails uh, in, in, or you know, probably better thought of as, as spikes. They would have driven these spikes through his wrists 
and his feet. They would raise the cross up with his body on it and drop it down into a hole. Oftentimes, they would build what looks like a seat on the front of the cross so that his body could rest so that he could suffer even longer, right? This is the, 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 the tool of cruelty that the Romans would use to punish those who deserved it. And as Psalm twenty-two eighteen 18 has already told us, this is exactly what they do. They divide his garments among them and they cast lots for his clothing. But I don't want you to miss this because this is so cool. The entire time Jesus is praying for them. The entire time Jesus is praying for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can you imagine this? Can you imagine him as the betrayer Judas comes and the soldiers with, with their torches are on their way to the garden and his disciples are startled, but Jesus knows what's coming and, and, and in his final breaths, he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he heals a guy's ear and he goes with the soldiers instead of calling down legions of angels. He stands before a trial where the king of kings is falsely accused and he mutters, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They're beating him with a whip. They're mocking. They're spitting. And the whole time he's uttering, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They nail him to a cross and they set him in the ground and they mock him again. And the entire time Jesus didn't said, he's saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Look at this. Luke goes on. Look at verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the entire time, Jesus is praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the entire time, Jesus is praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And the entire time, Jesus is praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And one of the criminals who were, who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Even one of the criminals who deserved the cross. Deserves everything that's coming his way is mocking Jesus, yet the entire time Jesus is praying for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And I'm sitting in this moment as I'm reading this text. Seriously, I'm at the, I'm at the, the, the little breakfast area in our house. Our kids are bouncing around. Kayla's washing dishes, I think. We're trying to finish up things for the night. We just got done with soccer. I, I was, I was trying to get the Bible study together. I'm sitting there. I'm reading. I'm processing. And right here in this moment, all I could do is think, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and I thought how many times is Jesus still muttering that for me every single day when he looks down at my life and the dumb things that I often do the things that I don't even realize have the impact that they do and God and Jesus looks at God and says God forgive that crazy boy he doesn't really know what he's doing Just fathom for a moment. Look at the man in the mirror. 
What happens when we look at the man in the middle and we see his patience with our sin and our wretchedness and our evilness over and over and over and he still says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's not going to change when we look at the man in the mirror. It's going to change when we look at the man in the middle. Look at verse 40. Let's keep going. Watch this. But the other rebuked him. This is the other criminal. He rebuked the other criminal saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Who's this man? Jesus has done nothing wrong. And he said, here's the criminal that rebuked the other one. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I'm reading this and I'm like, man, when I see the man in the middle, I see problems. You say, hey, what are you talking about? Not his problems. Jesus doesn't have any problems. Not anybody else's problems. Although, let me tell you something, friends. We all got a lot of problems. If my focus is on the man in the middle, I begin to see my problems and I want them changed. Okay, tell you something. We have a word for this. It's called conviction. Luke uses the word rebuke several times throughout his gospel, and it's always used as a response to various types of evils. Matter of fact, let me give you an example. He rebukes demons. He rebukes elements such as the wind and the waves and the storms that are being tempted that they shouldn't be. He rebukes sickness. He rebukes sinning brothers. He rebukes judgmental disciples. And Luke is using it again to respond to evil. In this case, the life of evildoers and criminals. I oftentimes wonder when I, when I read this story, this account, this encounter, I oftentimes wonder how much the criminals on the cross knew about Jesus. We don't know of any kind of interactions that they had, but we don't know that they didn't have some interactions. They're from the same areas. Certainly they heard about him and what all he had been doing. In fact, they must have known a little bit about him because this criminal rebukes the other criminal with this phrase, this man has done nothing wrong. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking to myself, did they know about the miracles of Jesus? Did they know how much he loved sinners and evildoers and wrongdoers and just plain out bad people? Did they hear about his phony trial and his betrayal? Did they hear that Pilate found no fault in him? Did they hear about their possible friend Barabbas being released even after all the bad things he had done instead of Jesus? His conviction... This criminal leads him to confession. You say, Danny, what do you mean? He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know why he uses the word kingdom? Because he realizes the man in the middle is not like him or the other guy on the other side. This guy's king. This guy's the son of God. This guy is the Messiah. This guy can do things nobody else can do. And so watch this. this look at verse 43. It's where Jesus brings it home. He said to him, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh, I love this last one. It's the best one. 
when I see the man in the middle, I see provision. Can I tell you something? When I see the man in the mirror, I don't see any provision. But when I see Jesus, when He's the one I'm focused on, when He's the one that my eyes are gazed upon, when He's the one that I'm walking after, when He is my focus, I see provision. Jesus tells this man that He will be with him in paradise. Now, I'm not real interested in all the theological ramifications of what Jesus meant by the word paradise, but here's what I will tell you. In the Septuagint, or the Greek Old Testament, every time you find the word paradise, it really means the word garden. And what do you think Jesus is referring to? I think He's referring to back in the beginning, when everything was perfect, right? I think He's referring back to the Garden of Eden, when everything was as God designed it to be. What I think is interesting is that one man chose ridicule and one man chose redemption. I think it's interesting that one man chose to scoff and one man chose to submit. What's interesting is that shortly after this moment, having witnessed everything during the betrayal, the trial, the crucifixion, we find one soldier doing exactly what he watched this criminal do. Matter of fact, Luke chapter 23, verse 47, here's what happens. Now in the centurion, one of the guys who had been with Jesus from the beginning of all of this, saw what had taken place. He praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. You say, Danny, why do you bring it up? Well, I bring it up because I believe Jesus leaves the choice with us. You see, we're not the man in the middle. So you know who that leaves us to be in the story? We're either the one on the right or we're on the one on the left. We're either the one who's going to keep scoffing or we're the one that's going to surrender. We are the criminals and Jesus leaves the choice with us. Which criminal are you? Listen, I want you to miss this, friends. You can try to make things better all on your own as much as you want. You can continue to try to do better every day in your own strength, but no matter what you do, you're still a criminal apart from Jesus. So stop looking at the man in the mirror and start looking at the man in the middle. Listen, those are not the only criminals that Jesus was in the middle of. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. And all I can think about is this moment on the cross. I don't know that Paul was thinking about it, but it's all I could think about. Here's what he wrote. He said, for there is one God and there is one mediator or one middleman between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this, friends, but Jesus is still the man in the middle. Will we choose to look to him or will we choose to look to ourselves? He's still the man who's making us right with God. He's still the man who's in the middle mediating between God and people. So after this account, Jesus died. A disciple of his, a friend named Joseph, takes his body, buries him. After three days, we read something extremely awesome. We can't read these moments without Mark 16.6. Here's what it says. And he said to them, it's an angel at the tomb that is empty, by the way. Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. And his disciples said, Hallelujah. It's happened exactly how he said it would happen. This is the moment in Scripture where everything changes. This is the moment where everything is turned upside down. You and me find our beginning in his ending. I love how John records 
the final statement of Jesus in chapter 19, verse 30, when he wrote, Jesus said, it is finished. You say, Danny, what was finished? Well, sure, his, his suffering was over, right? Like that had to feel good in that moment. Sure, his obedient life had been completed. He had fulfilled all the law and the prophets. Sure, he had defeated the devil. But can I tell you something, friends? What I like to think about when I hear Jesus say, it is finished, your sin and my sin has been atoned for, and sin and death and the grave has been defeated, and it is no more. Jesus said, friends, whether you trust it or not, whether you follow me or not, whether you choose to take the penalty that I've already paid, that's on you. I can tell you right now, friends, it is finished.